back to Cousin Eternal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The Lady of the Lake, Chapter 3. So, uh, this is a chapter where we check in on Geralt and his Hansa in Toussaint. We find out some stuff that we've been uh, been hinted at and sort of come to understand where Geralt's head is at this point, which is not in a great place. Um, and sort of examine how the Hansa is kind of in a stalemate with their their heads and their hearts, basically, and their, their friendships are being tested. And that will come into focus later in the book. It's also a much lighter chapter. It has a sense of funniness about it, especially near the end, where it's not taking itself too seriously because we came off a really dark book. And then we, we open this book with sort of a fairy tale type feel in having read this book it's going to get very dark very quickly very soon so Sapkowski sort of front-loading the jokes to the easy win you know one toe at a time into that pool before he quenches your heart and smashes it all over the floor and uh, all that kind of jazz so uh, we get introduced to Duchess Anna Henrietta what's interesting here is that she is a spoiled child uh, who has become this ruler of this duchy who's, you know, they're a vassal state of Nilfgaard, but, like, they're they're very much independent. Nobody takes them seriously. This is even talked about in dialogue by character, uh, you know, particular characters, especially Fringilla Vigo, who is related to Duchess Hania Henrietta. Um, she is, you know, uh, blood-related in some uh, some respects. Her uncle Arturius comes from here, etc. Basically, Toussaint is so stuck in its way, and it's basically fantasy France. Um, and, and in within that, you have a very decadent royal class, um, an extreme culture based on tradition and uh, wine, and all that comes with that. So, like, the, the uh, Festival of the Vat is very much um, grape-stomping or grape-treading. Uh, there's a few other names for it, which is a real-life practice. Uh, and in the early days, did uh, did include scantily clad women um, doing it. And it was very clearly for the, the leery-eyed men in the crowd. Um, it, it's that kind of jazz. And, you know, Toussaint is described as the land of fairy tales. And there's all these different monsters that are here compared to previous where monsters were hard to come by but Geralt is like these aren't the monsters you thought they were they're actually this kind of monster and there's also this really funny side plot thing that will uh will be part of Regis's thing uh in later chapters that there's the succubus who's around Beauclair and they want uh, the Duchess wants the succubus gone, so hires Geralt for that. But all the locals, including Peyrick Peyren from last book, want her to stay because, well, they're enjoying their their uh, pleasures with the succubus, and no one needs to know. It's not like she's harming anyone, right? And uh, you know, it, it's just kind of inherently funny. Um, and, and the way I always read it, and this is stated in text by Frigilla Vigo, which I think is extra hilarious is that the reason why this is the land of fairy tales and the reason why everybody acts so strange and over the top uh into it's because they're so drunk 
they're they're always drunk because they're always drinking wine. They're drinking wine with everything. They're a culture based on the exportation of wine. Estes is known internationally as one of the best wines ever, right? And 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 so like that that's their prerogative. It's very French, uh, you know. On vineyards in France, you'll you'll see all the time that people are just casually drinking wine, like for no other reason than the pleasure of it. It's you know it, it's just such an odd cultural thing. If you're not used to that, you're very confused by it. And so this is a fantasy version of that. So whereas in the real world, they just seem a bit strange in the fantasy world. It's the land of fairy tales, but really everybody's just drunk and no one takes them seriously either. I mean, you know, more to that point, you know, Anna Henrietta is so naive and so such a spoiled child that she writes to her cousin, Amir Var Imris, to end the war. And she assumes that the war will end simply because she asked him to. Uh, and that it was senseless and, you know, we, we shouldn't shed blood. Sincerely, your cousin. And that's it. And no one will tell her otherwise. No one will tell her no. Everybody tells her what she wants to hear. So she hears a very coddled, sheltered viewpoint of the world. She assumed the war ended ages ago. And so when Geralt has to explain the situation to her, she's confused, at times outraged. And even then, he, you know, his, uh, the, the way it's written, you know, it Im implies that he's choosing his words carefully, but even then he goes a bit too far. As we've seen, he can navigate royals pretty easily. Uh, he understands that way. He just doesn't like it. He hates the pretense of it, but he can do it because he's smart enough to be able to navigate these massive egos, basically. And with Anna, because she's so so, uh, you know, different, so spoiled, so coddled that even his tact can only go so far before he, in you know, enriches on her shelter, her safe space, if you will. And such an interesting way to view things. Like, we've had different views of rulers, uh, you know, throughout the... the, the, the uh, you know, throughout the saga, we've had competent, uh, you know, royals. We've had incompetent royals. We've had, you know, selfish royals, etc. And here we have the 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 classic, the royal who is only here because of their blood or because of the where they married. Just nothing else. They have no traits that are worthy of being a ruler of any kind. They have to be coddled. They they cannot be told the truth, and. Everybody loves her. Uh, whereas her husband, the the Duke, was basically hated. And everybody was happy when he died. Uh, and now she uh, she rules with such respect that, you know, it, it, it's, the, it's the kind of ruler that only drunkards would appreciate. The one who doesn't care. Who simply says, be merry, be happy. And that's it. And... You know, Dandelion had a previous tryst with her, and so he's back into that position, and we see that she treats him like a pet. She herself is domesticated, effectively. She is a pet. She is treated by her populace, especially by her counselors, as a child. And the only way in which she feels power, effectively, true power... Uh, subconsciously, I would assume, because I assume she sees uh, some of it, but just assumes that everyone else is an idiot besides her, when in actuality it's the reverse, she treats Dandelion like a pet. 
you know, expects him to do it on her all the time. You know, expects him to do certain things, to act a certain way. And of course, Dandelion's going along with that and has become lovesick, puppy love with, uh, with Anna. Uh, you know, he's reignited this old flame. And that leads to the big argument in this chapter between Geralt and Dandelion. Geralt is basically like, we need the we need to go, we need to figure things out. Um, this isn't going to uh, help with a royal watching us. We really need to get out of here. And Dandelion says, I don't want to go. I I love Anna. I just want to stay here. I want to. I, I I feel like, you know, this love could mean something, and that we will marry. And Geralt. Barsno holds when he says duchesses only marry musicians in fairy tales. In effect, they have reversed places. Normally, Geralt is the lovesick puppy, and uh, Dandelion is the observer. But now they have twisted the roles because of the place they are in. You know, now Dandelion feels more at home versus Geralt. And so now they're they're chafing against that. And while they still care for each other, and while they still are very good friends, they have reached an impasse where basically they are both stuck in their ways, ruling by their own emotions and their own loves, that, you know, they can't see eye to eye on this situation. It's a love's blind situation. Love you know, can be wonderful, it can be amazing, but it can also blind. And here we see the blindy effect, whereas we've previously seen the wonderful effect. Then, with all of this going on, everybody in the Hansa sort of finds an excuse uh, to stay in Tucson. They, they, they didn't have to stay there as long as they did initially. Then they did, and then it was winter, which means that they were stowed in, uh, and, and then uh, they stayed past that so basically they've stayed there since october and they didn't have to but they did and this has elongated their journey and basically everybody's taken this respite to find an excuse not to go on the suicide mission because effectively as this has been stated by me and the books since they set out on this journey it is a suicide mission none of them expect to return alive especially because they're operating on false information as we the reader know and because of that you have, uh, you know, you have effectively a a character in the in the face of Gout who is wants to go, but can't, because in his head, he's been portrayed by Yen, and Siri is dead. He believes that there is a chance that Siri is alive, but is pretty sure that Yen betrayed him. Of course, none of that's true, as we, the reader, know. That's the way he perceives it. And we saw that that was slowly taking effect on him last book. And this right here is when we grind to a halt. Now that he is no longer on the move, now that he is no longer being forced to be part of this company, he has now basically reverted to old tricks. Um, the comfort blanket. He, as I've mentioned several times since the very beginning, Geralt is not a mentally well man, and because of that, you know, as as someone with depression, I perfectly understand him in in this capacity. It's a it's the sad truth of the fact that when you hurt, you try to find comfort, and comfort can be great in small doses, but sooner or later you have to wake up and smell the roses. And that's the problem, is Gout doesn't want to. Uh, he's reverted back to being a witcher, 
even instinctively taking contracts. Uh, he's opened up a bank account for the Witcher Pension Fund, as he jokingly says. And he calls this, uh, you know, occupational therapy. Uh, and that he he's just sort of falling into this, you know, cycle of, you know, as Kikir points out at the end of the chapter, he only has two things to occupy his time anymore. He's fucking Fringilla, or he's going and fighting monsters. In effect, he's reverted to the Geralt of the short stories. All that growth has dispersed. It's not technically gone, it's still there in his head and it's gnawing at him. And as we'll see, it will come to full circle when he finally goes, okay, fuck this, I, I, I'm a better person than this. But he has taken the comfort blanket so far that he has reverted into the the Geralt of old, the Geralt who's who you know didn't change, who hasn't grown, who's just this mindless killing machine, as he likes to pretend he is. It's sort of mentality where he flows through life, and I think we especially see that in the sex scene with Frangilla. The, you know, the scene itself is hilarious, but though the way it's portrayed is different. You know, with Yen, all the sex scenes have been either sweet um, or lovingly humorless in that way that, you know, only marital bliss brings. You know, the, the, you know, the laugh at this absurdity, but also to enjoy each other's company, right? Uh, or, you know, as I said, you know, the sweetness of it. With Frangilla, it is pure humor. Nothing is taken seriously. And when she asks him questions... He gives very specific answers that is very different from his one with Yen. If you notice, when when they, when they him and Yen sleep together, especially in Time of Contempt, this was made text, not just subtext, they find each other. That they uh, basically are become one in a way. They are attuned to each other's emotions, and they understand each other, and they, they don't have to speak often, because they instinctively know each other but when they do speak it is soft it is sweet and it is very very humble as though you were talking to someone you've talked to every morning for your entire life with Frangilla it's very much that you know uh, the, the, the one night stand kind of thing where you're just saying things just because it's expected of you to say things and Geralt even mentions in his monologue you know we, we, we said banal truce, you know, and trivial lies. None of it was meant to offend. All of it was meant to, uh, you know, encourage. In effect, he's not saying anything. He's, you know, saying water is wet. Ooh, such a big revelation. Compare that to his conversations with Yin during their sex scenes or whatever, where it's just like, you know, destiny alone is not enough. Something more is required. Stuff like that. Like, it, it, it's very much a tonal difference there. And I think that, that that's driving home a point because we, if Frangilla mentions uh, near the tail end of the chapter in uh, her internal monologue, basically, that, uh, you know, that Geralt calls her Yennefer during the sex. And, you know, we know that Geralt only ever thinks of Yen, that he is replacing Yen with her. She, when he first sets eyes on Fringilla, he describes her as, you know, short, raven black hair, 
sparkly green eyes. What two characters have those exact traits? The raven black hair goes to Yennefer, and the sparkly green eyes goes to Ciri. The two women that he loves the most, he, you know, effectively his wife and his daughter, his family. And he feels, he fears he has lost them. So within Fringilla, he finds the physical embodiment of both. The mental and, you know, familiar bond is not the same, but that doesn't matter to someone in that mental state. All he needs is, you know, a, a you know, a replica, a illusion of them, so that he can feel like he he's safe, that his family is back together. And honestly, that's quite sad. It's really sad to see Geralt in this position, um, because you know, not only is it sad on his mental health and the way he's regressing from his character development. And how that will come in later, and why this is important to see him regress, and 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 whatnot. But also knowing we, the reader, knowing that Fringilla is part of the lodge, and at the end of the chapter, she does reveal that she is intentionally doing this. That throughout the chapter, she kept throwing herself practically at Geralt, and we find out that 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 was a specific purpose. That's why she's there. She's there to pry information out of him, uh, and from the general area, as well as keep him distracted while the Lodge sorts out the entire Yennefer and Ciri situation. And so, Geralt is being honeypotted. That is, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a terminology of a of a spy trap, um, where basically you prey on someone's uh, your weakness towards, um, you know, sexual activity or loneliness, etc., and you attack it, and that feeds information. Uh, I talked about this previously, uh, when Vadi de Rideau was being honeypotted, like this is a this is a classic technique in espionage, and poor Geralt, because of who he is and the way his mental state is, he's being taken advantage of here, and you can't help but feel very very sorry for him. And the rest of the hunter are finding ways to you know settle in. Milva is you know bonding with that Baron uh, on hunting techniques, and there's there's a hint that there's some attraction there. Uh, you know, Angulem, who, who's really taken a liking to not only the, the court, but hanging out with the kids of her fellow age that aren't, you know, the pre, you know, in her previous time, her previous life, when she was hanging out with people of her own age, they were, you know, bandits and drug addicts. And so the, these people who are very, you know, the, these kids are very upbeat and happy and living a good life that isn't misery and uh, crime is really refreshing to her. And then you have Dandelion, who's completely puppy love, you know, with Anna and Rieta. Uh, then, then you have Kahir, who, you know, while he, you know, he's famous for going, I'm not Nilfgaardian, I'm from Vico Vero, you know, he is not Nilfgaardian in the terms of Rome, you know, be Roman, you have to be from the city of Rome. You know, to be from Nilfgaard, you have to be the, from the city of Nilfgaard. But, you know, to stop being a vassal of uh, Nilfgaard means that he's in effect back home in a way because he comes from a, another vassal and so he gets to experience that 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 sort of uh, feeling of being at home being at rest being at peace without all the the troubling aspects of that considering he is deemed a traitor uh, because Tussauds is so far removed and no one takes it seriously, he's not being checked out. And then Regis is enjoying, uh, you know, only not only being able to be his own 
herbalist self and uh, you know barber surgeon self and be left alone. But he's also taken a liking to a certain succubus, and uh, the vampire and the succubus are having a good grand old time. And then of course Geralt's in this situation where he is both now a witcher again, taking witcher contracts, earning money, and sleeping with Frangella, who is his Yen and Siri replacement. No one's coming out of this looking good. This goes completely against what they set out to do, and that's the point. Uh, it's the oasis in the desert. Everybody has their price, and because of that, uh, sooner or later, in a big grand quest, you will come to a point where you're just so tired that the merest sight of convenience will make you lose sight of everything else oasis in the desert you know and it, it, it's really sad to see them this way i know what's coming so i know that this is the you know this is an important moment in their in, in the development in the way that they're going uh but it is ultimately a sad case of our heroes stopped being heroes and this is again sipkowski jokingly laughing at fantasy conventions the fellowship you know sets out but yeah they get split apart there's a lot of issues there but they all go their own way to to solve the problem and uh hooray frodo you know through the ring into the mordor you know mount doom blah 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 in you know end of end of the the lord of the rings blah blah at the end of the day they all even though they split up you know did accomplish the goal of the fellowship in the first place and uh you know that, that's even more clear in uh the movie adaptations you know where you have lines such as for frodo stuff like that and you know in classic D D, you know this party never splits up that's rule one you know never split the party you know always keep the healer alive etc right but what if the party just stopped that's what Sapkowski's asking of the fantasy convention is no one in their right mind would actually do this. Uh, this is a suicide mission. They all agree it's a suicide mission. So the moment they get a chance to exit um, in but stay together, they take it. And that shows the flaws in our heroes, that our heroes aren't infallible, that our heroes aren't fantasy cliches and aren't going to go and kill the evil bad guy just because that's what the story dictates. Interesting chapter, and we'll see some more developments of this, uh, you know, the time that you saw as uh, these chapters roll on. And uh, just as Dandelion said in his excerpt that opens this chapter, do not condemn him. Love takes many forms and many names. See you next time. Bye.